Well, let's uh, turn to our passage for this morning, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in the house. And it was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees with their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the, wine and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you that as your word is proclaimed, your spirit is at work in the hearts of your people. Lord, there is no boundary that is able to stop the advance of your word. There is no physical boundary. There is no spiritual boundary. There is no mental or emotional boundary. There is not even any technological boundary that can proclaim or that can stop the proclamation of your word from having its perfect work in the hearts of your people. And so, Lord, as we come before you, Lord, we pray that you would be at work in the hearts of your people even now. We pray that you would cause comfort to come where comfort is needed. Hope to come where hope is needed. Encouragement to come where encouragement is needed. Rebuke to come where rebuke is needed. Admonishment to come where admonishment is needed. Lord, we pray that you would cause worship to come because worship is always needed. We ask this in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let us eat and drink together, for tomorrow we die. The threat of COVID-19 has many around us coveting, sorry, contem contemplating their mortality. It's not really a bad thing. People need to consider the fleetingness of life. 
However, for many, the thought of their mortality only drives them deeper into sin. It drives some into sinful fear and selfishness. It drives others into deliberate immorality. Again, they say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is the kind of attitude that many will have at a time like this. If I'm going to die anyway, I might as well go out with a smile on my face. Many of us know people with that kind of attitude. That was my attitude in my youth. I wanted to live fast and die young. I didn't expect to make 30, and by the time I was 20, I was well on my way down that road. When the Apostle Paul wrote, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he wasn't commending this as a lifestyle choice. He was saying that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul is saying that he would be a fool to live for Christ if there is no resurrection for, from the dead. But in fact, of course, Christ is raised. Death is swallowed up in victory. Paul here was referring to the fools in Isaiah 22, 13, who ignored God. I was one of those fools. I was a fool and I was living in the company of fools who thought the same way. Maybe you also were one of those fools. My friends were running headlong down the same path. Countless people are on this path, on the broad road that leads to destruction. Paul warns in the same passage in verses 33 and 34, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not, do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Many of my old friends are headed for destruction. Many of your old friends are headed for destruction. Some of your friends and my friends that we have now are headed for destruction. May the Lord rescue them as he has rescued us. Paul reminds us, brothers and sisters, because of the reality of death and because of the reality of the resurrection, to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So what is the Lord Jesus calling you to do? He's calling you to follow Him. He's calling you to follow Him with others who are following Him. This morning we're going to see how in verses 27 to 32, Jesus eats and drinks with sinners. And then in verses 33 to 35, how Jesus' disciples eat and drink. And then verses 36 to 39, how Jesus pours new wine into new wineskins. So this passage, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39, is paralleled with Matthew 9, verses 9 to 17, and Mark 2, 13 to 22. It's not just about the food and wine that runs through it. This passage is about friendship and separation. Jesus' call of Levi and his association with Levi and the other so-called sinners creates a conflict with the religious authorities. Jesus will be criticized by the Pharisees for the fact that he would eat and drink with sinners. 
a criticism that they will commonly, commonly and increasingly make against him. The separatism of the Pharisees provides a stark contrast with the evangelism of Jesus. The Pharisees sought to avoid sinners. Jesus reaches out to sinners. The Pharisees were concerned with externals and appearances. Jesus is willing to show compassion to the outsider in need, no matter what others think. Jesus, Jesus genuinely cares for sinners and calls them to repentance. And Levi, the tax collector, serves as an example of one who is called and one who repents. So first of all, in verses 27 to 32, let's see how Jesus eats and drinks with sinners. After the events that we saw in Luke 5, 12 to 26, Jesus cleansing the leper and healing and forgiving the paralytic, Jesus leaves. Mark mentions this, is also, this event also takes place after Jesus taught beside the sea. Jesus finds an individual in the crowd, the kind of man he was looking for, a tax collector. But Jesus wasn't looking for this man to pay the tax. Jesus had other business to attend to with this man. Now remember, we were introduced to tax collectors in Luke 3.12 when they came to John the Baptist. Remember that the tax collectors were among the most hated members of Jewish society. The Romans mercilessly taxed the nations that they occupied and they would hire out taxing rights to the highest bidder, often citizens of the country that they, that they occupied. The tax collector would then pay Rome from his revenues and would often collect, collect much more than was required and make a hefty profit from his collection. Other Jews considered tax collectors to be traitors and extortionists, a symbol of moral corruption. And this is exactly the kind of man that Jesus was looking for. Last week, Jesus healed a leper. This week, he heals a social leper. Be encouraged by this, not to give up that no one is too wicked to be saved. But this tax collector wasn't just the kind of man that Jesus was looking for. This tax collector was the particular man that Jesus was looking for. The verb that is translated here, saw, communicates that Jesus was looking for him intentionally. Jesus was looking for Levi. Now Luke gives us his name as Levi. Mark refers to him as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Mark 2.14, Matthew tells us his name as well. It's his name. Matthew. Matthew 9.9. 9. This is certainly the same individual that wrote Matthew's gospel account. Levi, or Matthew, is the same individual. This is the only time that Luke refers to him as Levi in his list of the 12 apostles. And in, in uh, 615, he's going to refer to him by the name Matthew. So how does someone go from being a tax collector in the depths of sin to becoming an apostle? One who is chosen by God as a special emissary to advance the kingdom of God. Simply through these words. Follow me. 
Jesus' command, follow me, is a command to repent and a command to believe. And Levi demonstrates his repentance by leaving and following. Levi leaves the money there on his tax collection booth and follows Jesus. But Levi wasn't just leaving money on the table. He was leaving his livelihood. He was leaving a very lucrative enterprise, an enterprise that had cost him a lot of money to undertake. Earlier, we saw Peter, James, and John leaving their boats and their nets and their big catch to follow Jesus. But a fisherman who left those things could return to their trade. For a tax collector, it necessarily meant burning the bridges. J.C. Rowell says that, that his worldly sacrifice was probably greater than that made by any of the other apostles. But he would have gladly made any sacrifice to follow Jesus. He would have left everything because he left it all for something far better. I see a parallel in the in 1980s Soviet Union. When a, when a Soviet defector would, would leave and, and go to a Western country, there was no going back. It meant leaving not only career, but country and home and even family. There was no going back. Going back to the Soviet Union would mean execution, usually by shooting. But many gladly made the choice, and many more would have if they had had the opportunity. Have you left everything to follow Jesus? Are you still leaving everything to follow Jesus? Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Are you continually letting go, not just of sin, but of everything that is holding you back from following Jesus? This command, follow me, is one that we're going to hear again from Jesus' lips in Luke. Now, not always with the effectual power to enable the sin, sinner to, follow, to repent and follow like Levi. But brothers and sisters, he has called you with an effectual call, enabling you to turn from your sin and to follow Him. And so we see Levi making a great feast in his house. He's not grieved by the loss, he's celebrating it. Leon Morris says that, that clearly he took the step not in a spirit of grim resignation, but with banners flying. True conversion produces joy. Because after all, it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Joy comes from the Holy Spirit. And the new believer who has never really experienced joy, when he encounters the Lord Christ and is regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit and is, is filled with, with joy, that bears fruit for God's glory. But there's not just joy on earth when a sinner repents and follows Jesus. Heaven rejoices and celebrates too. 
Luke 15, 8 says, just so I tell you, there will be more, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So who did Levi invite to his feast? A large company of tax collectors and others. Later on, the Pharisees are going to lump them all in together and call them sinners. These were Levi's old associates. And so his motivation here is very likely evangelistic. He wants to introduce his friends and his associates to Jesus. So one minute, Levi was in a tax booth robbing his own people to line his own pockets, and the next, he's doing evangelism. Maybe you can relate. I remember when I was, when I was a, a new believer, I tried to share the gospel with everyone and not just those who would listen. But what I, I lacked in wisdom and tact, I made up for in zeal. Is that true for you as well? May, may you and I still have that zeal. May we, you and I still have that, 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 that zeal for converting sinners to Christ, but may it now be added to with, with wisdom and tact. Are you still seeking to introduce people to Jesus? Any failure to do so amounts to a failure to love others, a failure to love God, or a failure to love both. And brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity, a unique opportunity right now before us with the threat of COVID-19. As I mentioned earlier, people are thinking about their mortality. And this is an opportunity not, not to fear monger, but to show people that they really ought not to, to be fearing just COVID-19, but the Holy God. You can say to people, are you afraid of this? You should be afraid of God. Because all of us one day, whether it's through COVID-19 or another means, all of us will stand before this God. And your only hope and my only hope is to do it covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. So here we have Jesus reclining at table with tax collectors and others. Now, if you understand the holiness of God, this should be troubling for you. Because as Joel Green explains, shared meals symbolized shared lives. Eating serves not merely a biological purpose, but also a social purpose. Eating together suggests intimacy and unity. Now, that was eminently true in that, that culture, but it's, it's also true in our culture. Now, the fact that, that, that we can't eat together at the moment, especially during our fellowship times after our service, it grieves me. It grieves my heart. Does it grieve you? Do, do you miss that intimacy with your brothers and sisters? May times like this make us appreciate the unity that we have in Christ that much more. Let this time apart give you pause for reflection.
Our fellowship meal says a lot about you. Who do you eat with? Who don't you eat with? Again, the fellowship meal is, is not merely a function of consuming calories. How intentional are you to invite visitors to join you or to be aware of someone who's sitting alone? Do you make a priority to sit down with someone to minister to them? Or do you spend that time catching up with your friends? And when you do sit down with your friends, what is the content of your conversation? Is, is it edifying or is it just shooting the breeze? J.C. Rouse says, let us seek friends that will stir us up about our prayers, our Bible reading, our use of time, our souls, and our salvation. And to that I would add, use your friendships to do the same for others. Jesus was intentional. Jesus was using this mealtime as an opportunity to teach, to minister to others. Jesus was fulfilling his mission as outlined is in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. These, these people are the poor, they're the captives, they're the blind and the oppressed to whom he came to minister. And yet Jesus' actions here lead to criticism from the Pharisees and the scribes. They're, after all, the religious authorities. The Pharisees, whose name means separate, saw themselves as the, the height of, of moral and doctrinal purity. Remember that we saw them last week sitting in judgment of Jesus. They're at it again. They're here to, to check up on Jesus, to see whether he, whether he and his teaching measure up to their standard. This is the height of audacity that these men would deign to sit in judgment of the God-man. And such as such people often do, they choose a sneak attack. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his, at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They don't go to Jesus with their criticism, but they do an end run around to his disciples. Friends, be very careful. If you have a complaint about what someone does or says, there are really only two places you should go, to God and to them. Anything else is gossip or slander. And the Pharisees and the scribes complain about Jesus eating and drinking with sinners. Only Luke here mentions the eating and drinking. It's an amplification of their criticism. This is going to come up again. Remember, Luke has referred to these people with the tax collectors as others, but the Pharisees, again, sitting in judgment, call them sinners. The Pharisees presumed to sit in judgment of everyone. But even if they were right, it isn't their place. But even more than that, by saying this, they're proving that they themselves are sinners. Think about it. If Jesus didn't eat with sinners, he would have eaten every single meal he ever ate alone. He couldn't have even sat with his, with his parents. Jesus was the only non-sinner in the room. Jesus was the only non-sinner in the world, and yet he condescended to come into this sinful world to save sinners. 
The Pharisees and the scribes would not have been at this meal. They wouldn't have been invited, and they wouldn't have gone had they been invited. They wouldn't have wanted to become ceremonially unclean through associating with such people. The Pharisees saw those people as being on the outside. But these were the very sort of people that Jesus came for. It was the Pharisees who were on the outside. The, the scene is reminiscent of the parable of the prodigal son that we'll look at later in, in Luke 15. The older brother is on the outside missing the party because he's too angry over the father's forgiveness and generosity. But Jesus answered the Pharisees and the scribes in verses 31 and 32. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who think they're well don't see their need to go to the physician. Luke the physician knew a lot about sickness. Now, experts are telling us that somewhere between 30 and 70% of the population will be infected with COVID-19. But sin is a far more infectious disease. Somewhere between 100 and 100% of the population is infected with sin. We were infected at our conception. Psalm 51.5, no one is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10, everyone is infected with sin. But those who do not think they're infected are the most at risk. Spiritual sickness requires a spiritual physician, and Jesus is that physician. The self-righteous Pharisees were in judgment of Jesus and every single person at that feast. But Jesus revealed that the Pharisees were the ones who were under judgment. Jesus did not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinful. The self-righteous cannot repent because in their minds they have nothing to repent of. I've known many people in my life whose lives are far more moral than mine was, but their morality is their enemy. Even people who claim to be Christians claim to be at times sinless. But 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But as 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John comes back again to this in 1 John 1.10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The self-righteous cannot do 1 John 1.9 because they have been blinded by the self-deception of 1 John 1.8 and 1 John 1.10. Robert Munger said the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. The church is full, not of the righteous, but of those who know that they aren't righteous and know that Jesus Christ is righteous. The church is full of those who have been declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but seek to walk in righteousness through the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. The church is full, not of the righteous, but repenters. Jesus Christ is calling sinners to repentance. 
Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of, of behavior. Repentance is a, is a gift of the Holy Spirit whereby he removes the, the stony heart of rebellion and replaces it with a heart of flesh, a heart that loves and worships God. It's a change of heart, but it leads to a change of behavior. Where there is repentance, works of repentance will follow. As, as John the Baptist warned the, the Pharisees who had come to him to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If I want to go to Vancouver, but I'm on a bus that's headed instead to Calgary, and you tell me, well, you want to go to Vancouver, but this bus is headed to Calgary, I say, no, I know, I'll, I'll get there eventually. I won't ever get there eventually. I need to physically get up off the bus to Calgary and get on the bus to Vancouver. You need to change your direction because of what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. He is granting you repentance and he is enabling you to turn from your sin and go in the other direction. Do you have anything to repent of. Sorry, that's kind of a trick question. If you can't think of anything that you should repent of, you should be concerned. You should be concerned because, because we need to be continually examining our hearts. Continually letting God's Word through the power of His Spirit examine our hearts and reveal to us areas where we need to repent. This is a, a continual process. The Christian never stops repenting. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And disciples will do the same. Levi, though a sinner in the eyes of the Pharisees, is actually on the right path. Are you a disciple of Jesus? If you are a disciple of Jesus, you will follow Jesus doing what Jesus did. Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. And he was. But he was only really the friend of those who would heed his call and turn from their sin and follow him. When I was a teacher, school teacher in Australia, and we had a, a new student who would start during the school year, I would usually know by first recess what kind of a student he or she was going to be. I knew what kind of a student that they would be because of who those new students gravitated to. That, that the naughty kids would tend to gravitate to naughty kids. But the kids who were, were better behaved would tend to, to gravitate towards other kids who were better behaved. What does your choice of friends say about you? When there's someone new visiting the church, do you walk around them to talk to your friends? Do you choose for yourself friends who are in the world? Friends who don't even make any claim on Christianity? Or do you choose for yourself friends who are just merely content to skate by? Or do you seek out fellowship with those who will spur you on to love and good deeds? And in times when you, when you go to, to be with unbelievers, why do you seek to spend time 
with unbelievers is because you feel comfortable with them, more comfortable maybe than you feel with others who are in the church? Or is it so that you will point them to Christ? Are you intentional? Do you intentionally go to spend time with, with, with unbelievers so that you can point them to Christ? Now, there is wisdom that needs to be followed here. I would encourage you, especially if you're a young Christian, not to do this alone, but to do this with other godly friends so that you really become the majority. Invite one unbeliever into a group of, of Christian friends. And together you can shine the light of the gospel. Do you show hospitality to, to others? Do you, do you welcome sinners into your home? Again, not just because you want to hang out with them. Because you want to introduce them to Jesus. Now, of course, hospitality is going to look very different right now. But hospitality can mean, can mean loving your unbelieving neighbor. Think especially of, of the seniors that you have in your community and, and, and you could give them a phone call and offer to serve them, offer to, to um, go to the grocery store for them, offer to pray for them, offer to share the gospel with them. The question now shifts from who to eat and drink with, but whether to eat and drink from who to eat and drink with, but whether to eat and drink. So verses 33 to 35, Jesus' disciples eat and drink. And they said to him, verse 33, the disciples of John fast often and, their pray and offer prayers. So too the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now Luke doesn't tell us who poses the question. And at first glance, it appears to be the Pharisees. But in Matthew's gospel account, we see that it is indeed the disciples of John who are asking this question. Matthew 9, 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It's a valid question. And it's not just an issue of Phariseeism versus Christianity, but it is a question of old versus new. It's become clear with the parable of Jesus in a moment. Now, people may disagree on the finer points of doctrine. However, I'm greatly helped by the quote from Augustine. It's a key maxim for the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, the disciples of Jesus and John the Baptist would have had all three. But the Pharisees demonstrated none of the above. I've often been surprised, even at myself, when we as believers who agree on so much gravitate towards debate over what we agree on or what we disagree on. Now one day, all of those differences are going to melt away when with one heart and one mind we gather together before the throne of Christ. But until then, we must strive for unity. Let's focus what we agree on. Now let's start first with the Pharisees who had the, the greatest disagreement with Jesus. The Pharisees fasted. 
not only on the Day of Atonement as an act of penitence as was required in the ceremonial law, but they also made fasting into religious exercise, fasting twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. The Pharisee in Luke 18 would use this as a testimony of his self-righteousness. But the problem is not fasting itself. The problem is with the heart behind fasting and the timing of fasting. The problem with the fasting of the Pharisees was it was out of self-righteousness. Their religion was external, man-made rules. The Pharisees prayed and fasted, but they were far from God. Please turn within your scriptures to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Luke 18, 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, we have an issue here of self-righteousness. The Pharisees thought that they didn't need forgiveness. They thought that they were the epitome of morality. But they were far from God and far from the kingdom. The fasting of the disciples of John presented a very different issue, that of timing. Remember that John the Baptist was a ministry of preparation for Jesus. We saw this in Luke 3, verses 1 to 22. John, John the Baptist was known for his ascetic lifestyle. In Luke 7, 33, Jesus says that John came neither eating no bread and drinking no wine. Matthew 3, 4 says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Matthew 11 18 says that again that John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The disciples of John the Baptist were following John the Baptist's footsteps with fasting. But the arrival of Jesus on the scene creates an entirely new situation. John came to prepare people for Jesus. But Jesus was now here, so there's no reason to fast. This was a time for feasting, not fasting. And then in Luke uh, 5.34, Jesus uses the parable of a wedding. It's also a time for feasting, not fasting. Now this is the first of Jesus' parables in Luke. Parables are essentially brief illustrative messages using elements that would be familiar and evocative to the minds of the hearers. 
Luke is going to focus a great deal on parables. In fact, 18 of the parables that are in Luke are unique to his gospel account. And Jesus asked the question, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now notice, first of all, that although they didn't fast, Jesus does not say that they don't pray. They were still praying. But fasting is linked with mourning. Following Jesus, though, is, is not some somber duty. Following Jesus is a celebration. And don't miss the way that Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. What a comfort to believers. That Jesus has for us the loving affection as a husband to his bride. Husbands, this is the kind of love that you are to have for your wife. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And interestingly enough, John the Baptist uses the same metaphor in John 3.29 and 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So this parable of, of Jesus would have resonated with the disciples of John. Later, Jesus is going to use this metaphor to speak of his return in Luke 12, verses 35 and 36. Again, we're seeing there the, the already, not yet. Jesus is saying that there, there, here that there is a time for fasting. But this isn't it. The time of his ministry on earth was not a time for fasting. The time of fasting would come at his departure. Verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Now Jesus is here alluding to the cross. This is his first such allusion, an allusion that is, is going to become more frequent and made more clear as his ministry progresses. That's allusion, not illusion. The Pharisees were, were outside of the kingdom. But the disciples of John, so far as we can tell, were on the inside. So whether it was the, the wrong motive of the fasting of the Pharisees or the wrong timing of the fasting of John's disciples, the only answer is to look at the new work that Jesus is doing. So finally, let's look at verses 36 to 30, 39. Now, Jesus pours new wine into new wineskins. Now the issue goes beyond fasting and prayer. Jesus is pointing to the spiritual significance of his ministry. Now this really could be said to contain three parables. We're going to look at them individually and see how they make essentially the same point, that the old and the new cannot be mixed. Listen to Daryl Bach. The ways of Jesus and the traditions of the current religion, even though related to the Old Testament, cannot be mixed without significantly damaging the new entity. Jesus will make clear there, that there is continuity between what he offers and what God has promised. Again, a key point in Luke, but one should have no doubt that what Jesus offers is decidedly new and distinct as well. And this is a theme that is going to continue in Luke Acts. So the first sub-parable, so to speak, is that of the cloth. Verse 36, 
No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the, the piece from the new will not match the old. It would be foolishness to rip a new garment to fix an old garment. Matthew and Mark add the detail that the new cloth is unshrunk, that it is, it is stronger and it will tear away from the old cloth. So the implication is again that the old and the new are incompatible. Jesus doesn't just come to, to tweak the old covenant, but to replace it with something infinitely better. The old covenant pointed towards what Jesus was going to do in the new. In the second sub-parable, Jesus comes back to the wine theme. Verse 37, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. This echoes what Jesus has just been saying. That Jesus is bringing new wine and it requires new wineskins. Now, I don't know much about the fermentation process, but apparently that, that when when fermentation takes place, there, there's gas that, that is given off and, and old wineskins would not be able to, to handle it. They would, they would split. So that, had to, so that new wine had to be put into new wineskins so that the, the supple leather of the wineskin would be able to expand with the wine that they contained. So, so though the, the, the new why is in line with the old covenant jesus has come to do something new so things like fasting can continue but now from a different perspective then the third sub, sub parable takes the point a little bit further verse 38 and no one after drinking old wine sorry 39 and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good so somebody who has not tasted the new wine is satisfied with the old. But the new covenant has replaced the old. And so the implication is, is that those who have already made up their minds will never change. The Pharisees who were sitting in judgment of Jesus and his teaching were completely satisfied with what they had and they will not come to Jesus. The, the Pharisees were satisfied with the old covenant. In fact, in fact, we'll in reality, they weren't even satisfied with the Old Covenant because they'd, they'd added so much already to the Old Covenant. And their, their understanding of the Old Covenant had become so corrupted that they didn't even have that. But with whatever it was that they had, they did not want the New Covenant. When someone is satisfied with their works and you tell them, that salvation is all of grace. They will often get upset at you. Because what you're saying is an affront to their self-righteousness. To their self-worth, to their, their ability to save themselves. Which is exactly what the Pharisees and so many people around us are trying to do. Jesus came to fulfill God's promises. All of the Old Testament types pointed to him. But being satisfied with the types, being satisfied of, with anything in the old, is like being satisfied with a drawing of a steak dinner and not tasting the meal for yourself. A drawing can provide no sustenance whatsoever. 
But that takes us back to Levi. Levi wasn't satisfied with the old. When he met Jesus, when the Spirit worked in his heart, he wanted the new. So Levi didn't stay Levi. He became Matthew through the ministry of Jesus, the friend of sinners. The gospel is not advanced through separatism and asceticism. The gospel is advanced through incarnation. As Jesus Christ, the God-man, came into the world to save sinners like you and me. Jesus came into the world, lived a sinless life, fully and perfectly loving his Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. And Jesus did this out of love for sinners. Jesus came near to sinners like you and me, and he purchased our pardon because the Father's wrath was poured out on him instead of us. Jesus became our friend because there was a time when he experienced the disapprobation of God, when he experienced the wrath of God in our place. And so Jesus still eats and drinks with sinners like you and me. It grieves me that we cannot now together celebrate the Lord's Supper because of COVID-19. When we eat and drink together, we are enjoying this means of grace that the very real presence of Christ with us in the table, not, not in, in the transubstantiation, magical sense, like somehow the, the bread and the, the wine are, are, are magically transported or transformed into becoming the body and blood, or not even in the consubstantiation. They're somehow present with those things. But there is the very real presence of Jesus spiritually we take the Lord's Supper together. I don't know when we'll be able to come and, and, and enjoy these elements again together. The only place that you could do this is when we gather together physically, corporately, as a church. There's something unique that comes when the saints come together with Jesus around the proclamation of the word and worship and prayer and then enjoying the table together. I don't know when we're going to be able to do this again together. But this morning, let the fact that we cannot eat and drink together 
be a reminder of the fact that we are waiting for the return of our Lord. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant in his blood. In him, we are made new. In him, we are no longer sinners because we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Yes, we still sin, but we are made new. One day, we will eat and drink with Jesus. Will there be even no more temptation to sin? When there will be nothing that can separate us. So we pray, Lord, come quickly. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, even though we are physically absent from one another. We dwell in your holy presence. Lord, we who were once characterized by sin, everything we did, everything we thought, everything we said was sin. But Lord Jesus, you came into this world to save sinners. Lord, you came into this world to call sinners to repentance and then through your effectual call, you granted sinners repentance. You granted sinners faith. Lord, we praise you that we are among those who Jesus came to save. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that one day you will come back to take us home. And until that time, Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember what this fellowship with you cost, what this fellowship that we have with each other cost, and help us, Lord, to cherish it and to anticipate that day when we'll be with you for all eternity. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen.